1: Today's episode kicks off a months-long periodic series we're going to be doing on the 2024 elections. Ryan and I will be talking to political strategists, pollsters, and others about what's at stake, what we're seeing and hearing, and what it'll take for Democrats to be successful in November. We'll also be asking New Deal leaders, particularly in swing states, the same questions. So to start things off, today we sat down with Sam Youngman, a veteran political campaign reporter and former White House correspondent. Sam used to cover presidential campaigns and administrations. He's currently an adjunct professor at the USC Annenberg School for Communications and Journalism, as well as co-writer of the daily newsletter, Today's Big Stuff, with Adam Parkomenko. All right, Sam Youngman, welcome to An Honorable Profession.
2: Debbie, Ryan, thanks so much for having me. I'm so happy to be here.
1: So exciting to have you as our very first guest on this series that Ryan and I are super excited about this year, where we're going to be talking to people both strategists and journalists and others, as well as New Deal leaders from around the country kind of about the election 2024, what's happening, what Democrats are going to need to do to be successful. Can't think of a better person to start this off with. So thanks so much for being here. I thought maybe we'd just start with, for people who aren't familiar with today's big stuff newsletter, maybe you tell us a little bit about that. I have joked with you about the profanity, <laughs> <laughs> the <laughs> profane nature of your fabulous newsletter. And I saw the other day you were saying, let's. Let's save America by swearing. You and Adam were talking about. So, anyway, but tell us how that got started and, and what you're trying to do. Because I think it's important to talk about how you break through the noise, actually, in in this crazy time.
2: Well, first, thanks so much for having me. I, I'm really so glad to be with y'all. I really am a big fan of the work that you do. Yeah, we were actually going to name the newsletter a dishonorable profession, but we went, with, uh, we went with today's big stuff instead. No, I tell you, next month will be five years since we've been doing this newsletter. It's got a little over 110,000 subscribers. And I'll tell you the truth, it started out as just a way to keep ourselves from going crazy. We were in the middle of the Trump administration. We were being attacked every single morning by the president of the United States tweets. And we felt like we were losing our dang minds. We started this for a few friends of ours, and it just sort of kept growing like wildfire. And a few months in, we got an email from a woman in Louisiana named Geraldine. And she said, thank you for making me realize I'm not alone in the things that I'm feeling every day. And I was like, oh, man, shoot, now this thing's got purpose, and we better stick with it. And the thing we found, and I should tell you, and and your listeners, it is a profane, immature. We like the poo jokes. It's, uh, it is. It is. <laughs> Who doesn't not,
1: like a good poo joke, Sam? <laughs> <laughs> Thank
2: you. It's. Uh, it is not what you would call a highbrow approach to politics. It is now. We like to think it's a pretty comprehensive newsletter that does include all of the important political news of the day. But basically, we just we felt like we should meet people where they were and where they were was outraged, scared, losing their minds and cussing like crazy. And it was nice knowing that we weren't alone. And the longer we did it, the more we realized that other people needed to know that they weren't alone either. We've been able to raise money for candidates. We've been able to really build a community and building that kind of community is what it takes to win elections. You need to you need to know there are like minded people out there are standing shoulder to shoulder with you in this fight. And I was listening to uh, to one of your earlier podcasts when uh, Ryan you had on Congresswoman Annie Custer out of New Hampshire, and one of the things she was saying that really struck a chord with me is that you can't give in to the cynicism, and I think that's absolutely right. The other thing you can't give in to is this idea of you that you're hope that it's hopeless. The Trumpists that we're up against are relentless; they just keep coming, and every day it's a new outrage. Every day it's something new and terrifying. And it would be so easy to just sort of throw up your hands and say, you know, we're outmatched, we're outnumbered. The richest man in the world is siding with Putin. How do we go on? And our feeling is, it's to quote, you know, paraphrase Mark Twain, nothing can stand in the face of laughter, at least not for long. So we're just going to keep making our poo jokes, keep cussing and keep building our community that hopefully will keep cussing to save America.
0: I love it. and I'll start with some cussing, which is you grew up in <laughs> Kentucky, as we could tell from the accent. you went to DC. you famously left DC sort of calling out a lot of the bullshit that was there. and then you're in LA, which I think there's has a whole different side of bullshit to it. But like you could have left it all behind and talked about the glory days of campaign's past. Why do you still engage and have to track all the craziness that's going on in the Republican Party from coast to coast? I mean, that has to wear you down at some point like it does the rest of us.
2: Yeah. Self-loathing, maybe. (laughs) uh, I'm uh, I'm kidding. No, to tell you the truth, I did try to leave it all behind. And yeah, I I guess I've never been accused of being a shrinking violet. (laughs) I I did leave Washington in, in rather infamous fashion, burning every bridge on the way out of town. Now, I'll tell you the truth, I left daily journalism in 2016. I was back in my native Kentucky covering races there, and a gentleman by the name of, well, I should not use the word gentleman. A guy named by the name of Matt Bevan had just won the governor's race in Kentucky. And I tell you it really made me question everything I thought I knew about politics, about Kentucky, about religion, about people. I just but everything I could think of was just sort of thrown off kilter. He was sort of a a, a Trump candidate before Trump was firmly in place. And I, I just decided I'd, I'd had enough for a while. And so I left. I was in the private sector trying to trying to make some money. and then two things happened. Donald Trump got elected and then I lost my mom and you know the, the two things really sort of combined to impress upon me that I needed to stay involved. I felt like it wasn't, well, to quote Congresswoman Custer again, there are no bystanders in p- democracy these days. And I just didn't feel like I could sit on the sidelines and not do anything aside from just being angry and outraged. So I got involved. Guy I knew was running for Congress in Lexington, Kentucky, and uh, he offered me $1,000 a month to be a consultant on his campaign. And I jumped at the chance and I said, let's do it. And we lost badly in the primary, making me feel officially like a Democratic consultant. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, no, I tell you, one of the things that I've really sort of has hit home for me these last few years is especially as we've seen racism really mainstream again, sexism really mainstreamed again, if it ever left the mainstream to begin with, is that people that look like me and sound like me have an obligation to speak up because there are a lot of people that look like me and speak like me that are part of the problem. So I feel like it's uh, sort of my obligation. You know, Muhammad Ali said that uh, service to others is the rent you pay for your time on earth. And I feel a, a less grandiose version of that for myself.
1: Sam, first of all, I'm so sorry about your mom and that we share that. We think. share that in common. So I really, that um, hits me and I understand that. Everything you just said about like where we are, the screaming, the yelling, the needing to curse earlier. We're not out of it, right? We're still really squarely in it, <laughs> and I, like, you know, and right. I think we're, I'm sure we're all like the whole world, just incredulous that we're still in it, right? That this guy's Me coming too. back again to, to run, <laughs> right? We thought we thought we'd finish this. So I guess you know, just maybe like this, the most open ended of questions ever. But like, what are we going to do about it? What? How do we? How do we break through the noise? How do we stay hopeful, as you said? How do we stay in the fight? and, and, and beat him this time, I guess I can ask specifics, but let's, let's just give you a really open-ended way to to answer that.
2: Yeah, no, it's a great question because, you know, as I mentioned, the people we're up against are relentless, which means we have to be too. And it's not always easy to do. It's exhausting. It's easy to get burned out. It's easy to question if it, any of it matters. I think the thing we have to do is we have to hold on to our hope with both hands. I'm, I'm talking to you this week in a week where I am shockingly optimistic about the future because I'm looking at what just happened in New York's third district. I'm, looking, I'm listening to CNN anchors saying they were in the district and they heard voters saying they were angry that House Republicans rejected and killed the Senate border compromise. That tells me that good governance is not out of style. That tells me that it, I, I think about uh, I covered the White House for, for four years. I covered George W. B. Bush's last year and Barack Obama's first three. And when Obama came into office, their mantra was good policy equals good politics. And as much as I appreciate that sentiment, I think in the 2010 midterms and that Tea Party shellacking, I think we started to see the limitations that good policy is good politics. I think it's got to be both, right? You've got to have the good policy, but you've also got to have the good politics. You've got to have the sharp elbows and the sharp ideas. And I think that's what we've seen in New York three. I think that's what we've seen from Joe Biden at every turn. You know, i look at Joe Biden's social media game these days, you know, the, the thing after the Super Bowl, just like we drew it up. I think the thing, in addition to holding onto our hope, is we just can't seed any battlefield, you know, whether it's social media, whether it's a cussing newsletter, wherever it is, we've got to be in the fight. We can't say, you know, look, we're the high-minded party that's focused on policy. We are that. But we've also got to pe- be the people that are fighting back. I look at somebody like Robert Garcia, who I know is, is the New Dealer. You know, there's somebody who is intensely policy-focused, but isn't above throwing a sharp elbow in these committee meetings when Marjorie Taylor Greene is going doing her lunatic routine. The flip side of that is look at somebody like Josh Shapiro, governor of Pennsylvania. You know, Josh is fighting all day, every day for democracy, for women's reproductive rights. But when I-95 collapses in Philadelphia and they say it's going to take months, even years to get that thing started again, Josh got it done in twelve days. So, you know, I think it's one th- one thing we've got to do is bring the policy. We've got to bring the results. And we're doing that. And then the other thing we've got to do is meet these people on the battlefield. We can't be too good to get our hands dirty and fight these fights that need fighting.
1: I, I'd be remiss That's sort it. of
2: a rambling answer. No, I'm no, sorry, it's a good answer. Fight. It's
1: a good answer. And, of course, I, I would, you know, lose my job if I didn't mention here that yeah, yeah. Josh is also a media leader just for
2: <laughs> – And doing a great job. So, I mean, if you look at what he's accomplished job. in Pennsylvania. I mean – and. You know, and look at what Pennsylvania voters have accomplished. Look at what they did with the state Supreme Court. Look at what they did with the state house just this week in that special election. You know, I think what you're seeing over and over again is voters just saying, hey, this Trumpism stuff has just gone too far. We want people who will get actual results. A lot of times Americans don't realize what we have until it's gone. And one of my great fears is that would be true of democracy. I think Roe v. Wade is a perfect example of that. But it's also one that was sort of a, a splash of cold water to the face for a lot of us. It was a reminder that elections aren't just popularity contests. It's, you know, they're not just Saturday Night Live sketches. They have real consequences. They come with real policy fallout. And the only way you get to shape what that policy is going to be is by turning out and voting. So my hope is, you know, as horrible it is it, as it is that we're having to go through this, and especially, you know, I look at women in Texas and Ohio, and is that that was the wake-up call we needed to really get involved really you know get involved i think after 2008 when obama won i think there was this sort of i think democrats sort of had this mission accomplished moment where it felt like hey we did it we beat the, the we beat the naysayers hope and change has won out we did it everybody go back about their lives and I think the thing that we've learned almost every day since then painfully is that none of these victories are permanent. They can't be won. They have to be fought. And so I think, you know, we've just got to, we've, like I keep saying, we've got to be as relentless as the people we're up against.
0: Can you give me a little view from your uh, home state uh, in Kentucky? Because it's been an interesting place. You obviously have, <laughs> uh, you've had some crazy candidates uh, win like Bevan. you've had Folks like Mitch McConnell there for a long time. But my old law school classmate, Andy Bashir is a bright spot there. Are you seeing any shifts in Kentucky as a result of the overturning of Roe or the fail to govern or just the fever breaking?
2: Yeah, there's a joke in Kentucky that if you don't like the weather, just wait an hour. I feel like that's true about our politics, too. And yes, I'm a I'm a big fan of Governor Bashir's. I uh, I joke sometimes that I think every once in a while God sends a Bashir to save Kentucky from itself. (laughs) The only state that you know elects Rand Paul, Andy Bashir at the same time. I don't don't know, (laughs) I don't know how you explain that. You know, look, I think the reality is it goes back to what we're talking about is that good governance is not out of style. You know, it may not always be sexy, but it is important. And I think people have seen that over and over again. You know, you, you go back to Governor Bashir's first couple of years, you know, with COVID breaking out, and he was a very responsible governor. And he, you know, was being hung in effigy on the front lawn of the governor's mansion. And, you know, there was sort of that feeling of, oh gosh, are the crazies going to win out again? We, you know, I think we'd gotten, with Trump winning, we just didn't know what to believe was possible anymore. And Andy just kind of did the hard work every day of showing up and putting people first. And he was rewarded for that. It helped that his opponent was sort of an empty suit that Trump had put up and didn't have any real plans except to divide Kentuckians even more than they already were. But I think, you know, by being a humble public servant, like I believe Andy Bashir is and putting people first, he's sort of given Democrats a roadmap and he's not the first to do it. He's just somebody who's doing it in a very red state right now. But yeah, I'm a big fan of Andy's, and you know, I, I keep talking about how we need to hold on to our hope. Well, Andy's given us a lot of hope to work with, and I tell you, I'm really excited to see what his future looks like because I think he's the kind of Democrat we need to keep our eye on. We need to be promoting. In fact, I, I look around at Shapiro, Gretchen Whitmer, you know, look at Minnesota, and Kentucky. You know, there the Democratic bench is deep right now. Maybe maybe deeper than any time in the 25 30 years I've been around politics. So as, as terrifying as things are right now, there's also a lot to be encouraged about.
1: There is a lot to be encouraged about. And I, I'd add Wes Moore to your list as well, who I love. Oh, and, yeah, um, absolutely. Because, uh, there's so many. And then, of course, New Deal, of course, we have leaders below the level of governor. So we've got more coming, coming your way. So um, I, I couldn't agree with you more. I might want to ask about the polls, because you talked about Bashir's win. You talked about Swazi's win. And... Every time we look, I think that's something that's got Democrats like tied up in knots. Is every poll we see Biden's behind, blah blah blah, and then yet is kind of you were alluding to actually when people have gone to the polls, <laughs> you know whether it was the when Biden first won the midterms, even in places like Kentucky where the one uh, choice was on the ballot, people turned out, and in other red states as well, or in the, and then we beat back the. Election deniers in places like secretary of states races, where many new dealers were running, and then even the off year elections with Bashir and, and others. So, I mean, my question is like, why are we? Are the polls wrong? Like, why are why why do we keep winning when it looks like um, that's not what what it says in the polls?
2: Yeah, I think pollsters are doing two things really well right now. They're motivating Democratic voters and also motivating Democratic voters to lose our minds. <laughs> You know, daily? It's, uh, yeah, <laughs> daily. And I look at somebody like Simon Rosenberg, who's done such a great job of sort of cutting through the noise and saying, hey, here's what's really happening. And he did that spectacularly well with uh, the red wave we all heard so much about in 2022 that just never materialized. And I think that a real failing on the part of pollsters and the mainstream media is that there was never a second of a reflection. There was There was never a second of how did we get this so wrong? Let's revisit it all it's just been kind of more of the same. And I really am of two minds of it because on the one hand, it keeps us engaged. It keeps us fighting. But on the other hand, it can be very discouraging. You know, you can, you look at some of the lunacy that comes out of Trump's mouth every weekend, and then you turn around and see him winning in a poll in, you know, Wisconsin or Michigan, and you just think, what the hell is happening? Like, is everybody losing their mind? It's easy to say, ignore the polls. It's much harder to actually do that. I've been saying ignore the polls for so long, and I still read them every single day. I still put them in the newsletter. So I think, you know, I remember when I was first starting my career, I, my first presidential election was in 2003, 2004. I moved to New Hampshire to cover the Democratic primary. And I was there on election night when Joe Lieberman's uh, top aide famously said, hey, we're, we're still within the margin of error. We're only in fourth place. And and we all just were sort of incredulous, like, "Buddy, this is there's not a margin of error. These are these are actual votes." And uh, you know, I think you see the national news media doing that a lot lately, which is they almost have gotten to a place where they, they put their polls above actual results. I tell you one thing that I've really been struck by these last couple of years is that there seems to be just an adamant refusal on the part of a lot of pundits and reporters to acknowledge what a huge factor women's reproductive rights are. I mean, that is an issue that is hitting people where they live. It is not something people are taking lightly. And it is sure as hell not something people are forgetting about just because we've turned the page to another election. I don't know why it's so easy for for the Beltway crowd to tune it out. But as long as they're ignoring that as the enormous issue that, is, that it is, then I think they're going to continue to get elections wrong.
1: Yeah. Well, I'll let you ask a question, right or say something, Ryan, but I, I do want to just flag it's such a nice segue. We will have Simon on. Simon's a former colleague of mine and friend. And so he'll be on with his Hopium Chronicles, another dose of hope uh, in, a, in a few weeks. So <laughs> thanks for, I think thanks for that
2: setup. <laughs> yeah, no problem. No, Simon is, you know, if you're looking for a voice of sanity and all the insanity, Simon is definitely a person to go to.
0: I want to ask because you were in traditional media and covering the Washington beat. The media is in such disarray right now economically. I think as as you pointed out many times, many different ways, sort of out of touch with what are the core issues that are that are affecting most Americans. What do you see as the future of of media? Is it more newsletters like yours? Is it are the large platforms going to continue small town papers? Like what's the, what What do you see this future of, of, of especially political coverage in this country?
2: Yeah, it's a great question. it's one I really wish I, I knew the answer to, you know, I've been in, involved in media one way or another for close to 30 years now, and it's been dying the whole time I've been involved. So, which is, you know, both terrifying, but also encouraging in, in that, I feel like there's always going to be a need for people who can tell stories. There's always going to be a need for people who can go beyond the ground, talk to voters and share what's actually happening. But I'll tell you this, you know, there was a recent Gallup poll that showed that trust the news media and individual journalists is just collapsing. And a big reason for that is they long ago lost Republicans who didn't trust the liberal media, but now they're losing liberals too. And I think it's this sort of antiquated adherence to this sort of both sides, false objectivity, instead of just telling people the truth. I think sort of that stubborn refusal to embrace and report on reality is not only helping to finish off sort of legacy media, but it's also created a vacuum that's being filled, not just by the misinformation people, but by people like Simon Rosenberg, who are creating their known newsletters, by people like Adam Parkamenko and I, who you know, created, created our own newsletter, The beauty of this digital world we live in is that everybody with a laptop and an internet connection has voice. So you know we're not reliant on the traditional gatekeepers like we used to be, which I you know I personally for the longest time found to be so tragic. You know one of the reasons I'm so intensely critical of the New York Times is because I believe it's in in its importance. I believe in its power. You know I think it is important to have sort of these you don't want to say neutral, but have sort of these arbiters of of truth. And that only matters though if they're willing to do it. If we're gonna get another year of but her emails coverage that's focused on Joe Biden's age, guess what? He's eighty one years old. You know, we know that now, okay? If that's that's disqualifying for you, okay. But we don't need to that doesn't You know, that doesn't cancel out 91 indictments. It doesn't cancel out a judge saying Donald Trump is rapist. It it doesn't cancel out January 6th. It doesn't cancel out all these other very real, very horrifying things that are on the horizon. And I think as long as sort of the mainstream media is presenting that false equivalence, they're just going to continue to shoot themselves in the foot because people can see through it. And I think one of the lessons from Trump, and it's a hard lesson to learn, is that people are desperate for honesty. They're desperate. They're so desperate for honesty that they'll accept a fake version of it. They'll accept rudeness that sounds like honesty. They'll accept crassness that sounds like honesty. And I think you know there is a market there. Um, I don't know what it looks like, but I think there is a market there for just honesty. I mean, that's one of the things we hear most often from our readers: is thanks for keeping it real. And I think that's what people want more than anything these days. They're tired of the BS because they've just been fed so much of it.
1: Sam, I think one of the unfortunate kind of things that came out of what you just talked about on this false equivalency is this idea that there should be third party candidates because both sides, right? So, you know, right. no, no labels, obviously, something we're paying a lot of attention to and, and speaking out against. But so, you know, that somehow Trump and Biden are, are, are equated. I thought one of the most outrageous things I've seen recently is one of their leaders talking about when explaining explain the false equivalencies. I'm sure you guys put in your newsletter, you know, this idea that, there was January six on the right, and then John Fetterman was about to wear shorts in the Senate <laughs> yeah, on the left, which, which oh seemed goodness. like a real head scratcher to put it mildly of, of of an equivalency there. I guess my question to you is like that's that is a unique feature of this upcoming election, and we talk a lot about the Trump Biden dynamic and what you just really artfully said about you know we've got somebody who's. You know, the only thing people are worried about is his age, but has been a fantastic president, and has a lot to run on, and we've got somebody who's been indicted inside of January sixth. But how? What do you think about these third party candidates and how that shakes out and what that might do to the race?
2: Oh, I think they are inherently dangerous. I mean, I think if you know, go back and look at the Iraq War, that doesn't happen if Ralph Nader's not on the ballot. You know, go back and look at Jill Stein in twenty sixteen. I mean, we know what these third party candidates do. It's not a mystery. you don't need polling to, to tell you. We know what they do. We know we live in a country that has an electoral college and we know that we know exactly what no labels can accomplish and what they can accomplish is reelecting Donald Trump. Look at somebody like Joe Manchin and I don't understand how Joe Manchin is supposed to be the solution to these problems. You're talking about somebody who's been lining his pockets with cold money the whole time he's been in the Senate. You're talking about somebody who helped kill the child tax credit because he said too many people were using it, too many parents were using it to buy drugs. I don't understand in what universe that makes him a centrist or a somebody with solutions. To me, he's more a part of the problem than really anybody I can think of in the Democratic Party. You know, the easiest thing in the world to get people to do is to rail against Washington. You see it in headlines all the all the time. Congress is dysfunctional. Washington is broken. Well, sort of, but it's not everybody. Not everybody in Washington is equal. There are people that are who are trying to break it, and there are people that are trying to fix it. And I think when we lump everybody into the same pot, it becomes very easy for the bad actors to get away with a lot of their, their bad actions. I am deeply concerned about what we're seeing from third party candidates. You know, I look at somebody like Cornel West with his you know remarkable, wonderful track record. And I just, I can't find a real reason he's running for president right now. Look at Jill Stein getting on the ballot again. Why is she running for president? Somebody explain that to me, you know. And then, you know, you've got RFK looking at an independent bid, which I don't think anybody can explain that to me. And then, you know, no labels, which, you know, I mentioned Joe Lieberman earlier. It's amazing how much of no labels seems to be politicians from yesteryear carrying around a lot of bitterness that they've sort of been left behind by a new democratic party. That's not afraid to fight back. That's not afraid to fight for people. You know, I guess I would just ask these folks, why are they doing it? Is it for themselves or is it for America? Because I don't believe it's for America.
0: I think one of the things that's giving potentially these candidates, some energy is this idea that you have young people in particular sort of feeling disaffected with the system itself and some of the some of the current candidates, you're a professor at USC. What does crazy Professor Youngman say to, his <laughs> prof- to his students? And, and what do you see in terms of both how they gather and engage with information and share information, and then also sort of how they're going to engage in politics going forward?
2: Yeah, I mean, I'll tell you this. I'm a big believer that Gen Z is going to save world, mostly because we forced them to. We have kicked the can down the road on so many problems that they face on a daily basis to the point that they have run out of patience. And I think if there is a disconnect, if there is apathy, it's because they felt, feel like they've been left to deal with some of these things on their own. You know, we're giving them a planet that is dying. We force them to endure years of active shooter drills. You know, I think they are in a lot of ways disgusted. They're, they're sort of like that, um, you know, that both side, a pox on both houses I was just talking about in that they don't see anybody showing up with solutions. I think if, you know, hopefully they'll look a little closer and see that one party is actually fighting very hard on their behalf, but it's not, you can't really blame them for the disappointment. You can't really blame them for their disillusionment, but we know that young voters were the difference in 2020 for Joe Biden. And we know that Joe Biden knows that, you know, there's a reason he joined TikTok, you know, Super Bowl weekend is he's trying to meet these voters where they live. I am a big fan of this generation, not just because they they came up with a level of tolerance that I think every generation before them was sort of missing for maybe people who are different than them, but also because, you know, I'll just be candid. When I was in my late teens, early 20s, I was very inwardly focused, which is to say I was a selfish little monster who cared more about drinking beer and chasing girls than I did anything else. I look at this generation and I see kids who are very outwardly focused. They care a great deal about the world around them. They care a great deal about the people around them, whether they know them or not. And they are they are dialed in. And I think if we continue to deliver for them, they will deliver for us. But We've got to listen to what they're saying. We've got to listen to what they want. Because let's be honest, they've got a lot more at stake right now than any of the rest of us do. They're the ones who are going to have to live on this planet the longest. They're the ones who have to deal with reinforced classrooms and duck and cover drills and nightmare after nightmare that's been thrust upon them by older generations' unwillingness to take these things on. So, yeah, I'm a big fan of Gen Z. I, I hope they'll forgive us for, uh, for the places we failed them.
1: How do you think Democrats are, you talked a little about meeting them where they are like to talk and what Biden did. I, I happened to, I know you got a little flack for the chocolate chip cookie. I loved that, that spot. Maybe, <laughs> I thought it was sweet. But anyway, I have no, I, I'm a, I'm the cynicism free zone myself too. But how do we, how do Democrats connect with that, that, that group that's feeling angry rightfully and, but in, involved, how, how do Democrats break through with either messages or, or ways to reach them, do you think?
2: Yeah, well, I think it goes back to what we were talking about at the beginning of the conversation and that it's got to be the two-pronged approach. One, we've got to, the messaging is always key. We've got to, again, meet them where they are, talk to them the way they're they're used to being talked to, go to channels where they are. You know, it's amazing how, how many of my students get their news from TikTok. So yeah, it'd be crazy not to be trying to reach them there. But the other part and the much more difficult part is the solutions part. It's not enough... To go on TikTok, it's not enough to give them lip service it's not enough to say hey we see you and we appreciate you they want results they want us to save their planet they want us to do something about guns they want us to restore women's reproductive rights they want us to not just fight for the things they care about they want us to deliver you know i think one of the things you know one of the reasons i'm optimistic joe biden's going to win this election in november is because he has a solid record of delivering you know, you look at $137 billion in student loans that have been forgiven already, and that's with a corrupt and broken Supreme Court trying to stop him, and he found ways to go around that, and he's not done yet. So I see, you know, I think one of the things that's given me so much hope is this isn't going to catch anybody in, Washington, in the White House by surprise. They know how crucial young voters are, and they know that young voters are sophisticated, they are not easily swayed by theatrics. They know they've got to deliver. And I think they have time. And I think, you know, this White House has delivered time and again. Now, are they going to be able to give them everything they want in this short amount of time with a divided government and a House of Representatives that's been hijacked by Donald Trump? Absolutely not. And that's a very scary thing. You know, I, I look especially at young polling when it comes to the uh, Israeli Gospels of War. They're not thrilled with, uh, with the way it's going. Um, so there are obviously some big red flags that really scare the bejesus out of me when it comes to you know whether or not young voters will show up this November. But it's my great hope that like every other voter in America, you know, as Joe Biden said, they won't com- compare him to the almighty. They'll compare him to the alternative because the alternative is much, much worse for the future of this country, for the future of this planet and for the future of Generation Z.
0: As we wrap up here, I, I want to get your take on your newsletters today's big stuff. In it, you can see if, you, as you read, in issue after issue, you can see that you're picking up on what are one off, seemingly one off little things that eventually become big things, hijacking whole parts of the party, issues that that become central to the way the media is talking about the presidential race. A year from now, what do you think the big stuff? will be that we'll all be talking about whether it's politics or media or the waves in the waves in LA uh, what, do, what, what do you think?
2: <laughs> well I hope that a year from now I'm talking about the waves in LA I, uh, I I've become such a cliche out here I've, I'm so hooked on surfing it's all I want to do. Well I'll tell you the truth I got out of the prediction business when an orange game show host won the presidency. I got out of the prediction business when an entire a major political party launched a violent attack on the United States Capitol to try and overturn an election. The digital age, we're changing so fast and in and in such unimaginable ways. I just can't imagine what the world looks like a year from now. My hope, my great hope is that we're talking about how American democracy is still standing. We're talking about how the Biden Harris ticket is on its way to fully restoring the child tax credit, forgiving more student loans, saving the planet, outlawing assault weapons. And I guess the flip side of that is we're talking about, you know, mass migration to the Toronto area. I don't know honestly, it's almost too horrifying to contemplate the alternative. You know, I know our, our European friends are being forced to do that right now, sort of think through the worst case scenarios of what happens. I can't bring myself to do that just yet. I, uh, I know it's something to be afraid of, but I just, I don't know. I don't, I don't want to live in fear of such clownish people. I'd rather just meet them where they are and fight them on that battlefield. And, uh, so yeah, I'm trying not to think about sort of that worst case scenario a year from now, and instead just say, you know, a year from now I want to be surfing in a democracy and uh, and excited about my Kentucky Wildcats going for another national championship. That's uh, <laughs> I've surfing I'll in a democracy. I
1: love that. I think that that's a good good uh, podcast title: Surfing in Democracy. <laughs>
2: Oh, I like that. <laughs> both can wipe out if you're not
1: careful. Yeah. <laughs> Sam, thanks so much for being with us. It was so great to have you to kick off this series. So thoughtful. So many things to think about. Really appreciate your time, and always great to see you.
2: Debbie Ryan, I enjoyed this so much. Thank you so so much for having me, and good luck with the series, and uh, and good luck to America.
1: Yeah. <laughs> good luck to America. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. All right, we'll talk soon.
2: Y'all, take care.
0: An Honorable Profession is a New Deal Leader's Podcast. Thanks to the team at New Deal for producing this episode. We encourage you to bring honor to public service, and because we keep things honorable, no tax dollars are used in the making of this podcast.